Greetings! My name is Keith Shirts, and this is CougarCast. Uh, welcome to this edition of CougarCast, where we are going to fawn, praise, and glory in the BYU basketball team for the year 2019 and 20 basketball season what a team what a team the cougars have this season they have a lot of things to really like about what it is that they do on the floor they have several things that they can do to try to hurt you and most importantly they have a cast and crew of guys that know their role and shut their mouths they go out and do everything what it is that they need to do. There's one person who doesn't shut their mouth. That's Jake Toulson. Holy cow, is it fun to watch that guy talk junk. <laughs> um, really, really remarkable BYU basketball team. And there's just you know a couple things that I wanted to cover in relation uh, to the BYU basketball team right from the go. Obviously, one game remaining left. In this regular season, they will play the Pepperdine Waves at Firestone Fieldhouse in Malibu, California. A house of horrors for the Cougars. Cougars have had a hard time going down to Pepperdine and coming away with a win. Now they must go and defeat Lorenzo Romar and the Waves. And Christina, the lead singer of the Waves. So... The thing that the, the the Cougar basketball team must do after, obviously, their immensely huge weekend before beating number two Gonzaga at home is they must go out and take care of business. Super important. Following that, they will go to the conference tournament, which, of course, has been a house of horrors. <laughs> You get horrors in Las Vegas for the Cougars. Uh, for the longest time, BYU has had a very, very difficult time winning conference tournament play. But most important, of course, is this game against Pepperdine that will take place on Saturday night. Now, the reason that these next two games in particular, what happens in the championship game probably against Gonzaga will matter to some degree, but ultimately the Cougars will have a real opportunity to really gain uh, an important aspect heading into the postseason if they can come away with wins against Pepperdine and then whoever they get in the conference semifinal, most likely to be St. Mary's. If the Cougars can win both of those games, I actually think it's going to mean quite a lot. And here's why. There are three prizes that are handed out as rewards for excellent basketball teams by the NCAA Selection Committee. Prize number one, NCAA Tournament Qualification. Basically, the way that this works is that you know that. You've either won your conference tournament, and you're an automatic qualifier, or you've had a very good regular season, and so you get to be at large. 
So you 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 get put in the NCAA tournament. So that's reward number one. According to absolutely everybody, BYU basketball is already qualified for the NCAA tournament. Even if they blow these next two games, the Cougars will find themselves dancing. That's prize number one. That's an interesting thing to think about, that the Cougars are already in the field of 68. But I want you to think about this, and it relates to prize number two. Since expanding the field to 64 in 1985, BYU has only had two teams that have received prize number two from NCAA tournaments, committees, selection committees. Two teams since 1985 received prize number two. Prize number two goes to a team that has the ability or the luxury to gripe and complain about their seating. Meaning, you're not just grateful to be in there. You know you belong. Now you need to be rewarded with a good path, a high seed, etc. Every other qualifier BYU has had outside of those two teams, one led by Michael Smith and one led by Jimmer Fredette, every other qualifier was either on the bubble, won a conference tournament, or they won the regular season and made it in as an out-large. But they had to be content with where the chips fell. This season's team has a resume and the national cachet to have the narrative that invitation into the NCAA tournament is not reward enough for the Cougars. BYU may be able to claim that they should also be rewarded by their seeding. Of course, this is only if BYU take care of business against Pepperdine and then in the conference semifinal. I believe if they lose either contest, BYU must slide back down the reward ladder and be content with just a place, uh, a, a ticket to the NCAA tournament. But they have a chance to be the third team since 1985 when the field expanded to 19, so sorry, to 64 teams. They have a chance to be able to complain and gripe a little bit about what their seeding should be. Here's the thing that we don't get to talk about much, as I pointed out. Only two BYU basketball teams since 1985 have had the luxury of seeding, of worrying about seed and being able to gripe about their seeding. Sure, you could complain, but... You should have had a better season. The Cougars go out, beat Pepperdine, probably win their semifinal, and show up against Gonzaga. I mean, and if they win it, holy cow, think about what you might be able to command for a seed there. Most places that do bracketology 
have the Cougars as a six seed, which is significant. The Cougars may be able to push themselves up with another couple wins, probably definitely to that five line of the tournament, which of course puts us right right in the fire of those five five twelve upset games, which ugh. but fear not, BYU fan. The Cougars have been extremely good in the first round of the NCAA tournament when they've had a seven seed or higher, again, since the expansion of the field in 1985, the Cougars have advanced to the second round every single time they've received a seven seed or higher or lower, however you, you understand what I mean, don't you? Seven, six, five, four, three. I won't even say two or one because we've never had one. But this Cougar team has the opportunity. Right now, they're probably firmly as a six. If they lose to Pepperdine, go back and who knows. You'll just have to wait for the selection committee to kind of put them where they need to go. They're probably in that terrible 8-9 game that puts you... That has been a very bad game for BYU basketball, <laughs> the 8-9 game. By the way, every game where we've been a lower-seeded team in the first round, we have also lost. So, really important to get seeding. The Cougars haven't had the benefit to really sweat out their seeding. Occasionally have been good enough to get a 7-seed. Possible the Cougars will also get a 7-seed this time. Uh, should they drop one of these games to either uh, the conference semifinal or Pepperdine. But if they happen to win both of those games, I think you're looking at a six, a five seed. And, oh, man, if you can imagine the first conference tournament championship win since 2001, I think you might even see the Cougars. You might even see them rise up to a lofty height of a four seed. Ho, ho, ho. Doesn't matter. Seven seed or higher, the Cougars have done extremely well in the NCAA tournament, at least for one game. Then it's not gone well in the second round. Cougars have only won in the round of 32 twice. Danny Ainge. Jimmer for dead. If the Cougars have made the Sweet 16, it has only been in the case where they have had the National Player of the Year on their squad. So, yeah, for whatever reason, when it comes March, when it becomes the big dance, the Cougars need good seating to go far. That's part one. Part two is if you're going to go far, First of all, so that was a six seed that went to the Elite Eight with Danny Ainge. And then you had a three seed that went to the Sweet 16 with Jimmer Fredette. So seeding matters. This team has two huge, important games. If you want to see them do damage, they need to go out and take care of business and win these next two games. And if you really want to see them do damage... You know, where they might play like Cleveland State in the first round. <laughs> you know, something like this. They can need to go out and win a conference 
tournament. And if they do that, holy cow, buckle up. We might have a lot of fun in just a couple weeks during March. The madness may be on. Cougars have done pretty well when they've had a good seed. Of course, there's only two examples. (laughs) So that's a problem. Okay. But I'll tell you where we haven't done well. Conference tournaments. Let's just have a conversation about conference tournaments and go down through the path of history and talk about conference tournaments. So conference tournaments began in March of 1984. That's right. Just before the Cougars would go on to win a national championship that fall. (laughs) Since March of 1984, BYU has qualified for every conference tournament except for one. In 1997, BYU had a crummy basketball team. The Cougars went 1-25, with their one victory being over the Utah State Aggies. Never forget that even in the worst season ever, BYU was still better than the Aggies. Struggles in conference tournament play are nothing new for BYU. Dave Rose just finished up a 13-year career where he never won a conference tournament. Uh, you know, the, the the fact that we haven't won a conference tournament, it's like the old rusty and dusty furniture in the house of BYU hoops. The Cougars have comp- competed in 34 conference tournaments with three success stories. That means that the Cougars have won their conference tournament three out of 34 times. (laughs) BYU basketball isn't quite paying a full tithe when it comes to automatic qualification. No, it dips beneath that 10% success rate. And so when you consider this, it's easy to think that BYU should have won more conference tournaments uh, you know, BYU has made it during this time to 13 championship games. And, and that's that's about 37.5% of the time BYU has made it to a conference tournament. They've made it to the championship game. So like four out of every 10 times, three out of 10, like, you know, right in the middle of that, four out of 10 times we've made the championship game, Okay. <laughs> And we've been playing for almost four decades of these things. So we've been around 13 times. We've made it. Holy cow. Three times. Three for 13. Yikes. Winning that trophy in that last game has been so elusive, it might seem like it might take a miracle for BYU to ever do it again. And you know what? That's exactly right. Because it will. Because it has. Let's go down and take a look at Memory Lane. BYU won the 1991 WAC tournament. They won the 1992 Western Athletic Conference tournament. And they won the 2001 Mountain West Conference tournament. And in each tournament victory, BYU has had to be remarkably lucky. Since it took a large dose of luck in the past, it's probably going to take Mark Pope to have another... You know, the horseshoes, the four-leaf clovers, all of that. Uh, He needs to find all of that to lead his team to conference tournament success. Fortune has to play a part 
of the future of this Cougar basketball team if they're going to win their conference tournament. And again, the reason it's important is seeding. It is seeding. Massively, massively important. Massively important. Oh, by the way, I never finished the third prize. The third prize BYU has never been considered for. The third prize handed out by NCAA selection committees is regional placement, meaning usually that only goes to the top team in America. So you're Duke and you start out in Greensboro, North Carolina, for example. They try to put the number one overall seed in a region most convenient to them. So there you go. Cougars have never been considered for that. (laughs) Maybe one day. All right, so let's talk about what it took just so that you can be refreshed or maybe even learn a little about what it took for BYU to win their three conference tournament championships, okay? 1991, the WAC tournament. Here's BYU head coach Randy Reed. Here's what he said about the game. You know why we won? The ball bounced out. That's why. Tonight, the ball bounced out. You got to be lucky, and tonight it was us that got lucky. The 1991 Cougars were led by freshman Sean Bradley. Seven foot six, string bean, rim protector, soft touch. The Y finished with a 17 and 12 record in the regular season, but they finished really strong during their conference play. They were the team that came in with some momentum, and BYU would finish in second place. In the conference. But everyone knew because of that 17-12 and record that the Cougar basketball team needed to win the WAC tournament in order to make the NCAA tournament. The Y opened the tournament with a 10-point victory over the Rams of Colorado State. In the second round, BYU played the Hawaii Rainbows. Hawaii was a sixth seed that upset New Mexico the three seed in their opening round game. The matchups between BYU and Hawaii were a showcase of opposite strengths. Hawaii had the guards and BYU a front line. Sean Bradley had to leave the game after just four minutes in the first half due to foul trouble. He would only finish the game with nine points and eight rebounds. To save the day, a senior leader, Steve Schreiner, Great player. Scored 16 points. But Schreiner had to come out of the game because of illness. Man. By the way, wash your hands, coronavirus. Come on, wash those hands. Stop the podcast now and go wash your hands. Do it! Why don't you have Purell in your pocket? I shouldn't joke about it, but, you know, wash those hands. So, Steve Schreiner, senior, reminding you (laughs) all these years later, (laughs) almost 30 years later, to wash your hands. He had to come out of the game with illness after he scored 16 points. So the Cougars were missing their best front court players. At this point, the great Gary Trost checked into a game. He was heroic on the night. It wouldn't be his most heroic night once Gary Trost and his wife saved people who were in a terrible crash on the side of the road and provided them CPR. A real-life hero was also a sports hero on this night. 
called into action. Gary Trost, 21 points and 12 rebounds to pick up the team in a major, major way when Bradley and Schreiner were sidelined. Trost wasn't the only sports hero that night. With 21 seconds left in regulation, BYU called timeout down three. Coach Randy Reed drew up a play for guard Mark Heslop. Heslop had missed last-second game-winning shots twice during the regular season. He missed against East Tennessee State and the Wyoming Cowboys. This time, Heslop would drain the big shot. Heslip explained the play. It was a set play. Quote, it was a set play. I got great picks from Sean Bradley and Gary Trost. I faked it underneath and swung it back out. I decided no matter what, I was going to launch it. Figured it was about my time to make it. In overtime, with the game tied on the final possession, Heslip took another big shot, but he just missed. Somehow, the offensive rebound fell to six foot one Scott Moon, the shortest man on the court. The smallest player on the floor came up with the hustle rebound on the offensive end. Now, Scott Moon was playing with an injury in this game to his shooting hand. His shooting hand had a metal plate and six screws in it. He was basically a cyborg. Scott Moon flinged up a hook shot in desperation. A hook shot! A prayer! A hook shot prayer! At the buzzer! The ball bound on the rim. Seven! I repeat, seven times! Before the ball finally dropped through the hoop. After the clock ran out. I call this the cyborg shot. Scott Moon improbably getting an offensive rebound, taking it with his cyborg shooting hand with a metal plate and six screws, throws it up there on a hook shot, and it bounces around like Kawhi Leonard took it and finally rolled its way down into the hole, and the Cougars advanced to the WAC tournament finals against their rival, the eighth ranked in America, the number eight team in America, the University of Utah. Now, the Utes had defeated BYU twice during the regular season, including a one-point overtime loss at the Marriott Center. I bet Mick, Rick Majerus, he, he didn't like that one. That's fine with me. Not only did the Cougars have to handle their opponents, they had to deal with the partisan Wyoming crowd. With the tournament being played in Arena Auditorium in Laramie, BYU never played the Cowboys, but the Wyoming faithful did their best to support who was, whoever it was that was playing the Cougars, even though they were the underdogs against the number eight Utes. Wyoming fans loudly participated in Go Bows cheers with the Hawaii cheerleaders during that game. They even took to cheering for the highly ranked Utes, as I said, over the underdog Cougs. BYU head coach Randy Reed was asked about the unkind crowd and responded a very 1991 response. Quote, I look at it this way, we're the underdogs. Saddam Hussein could have been playing tonight and they'd have cheered for him. End of quote. BYU had just lost, uh, sorry, excuse me. Wow. Utah had just lost two games all season heading into the championship. 
BYU did everything just right against the high-powered Utes. They absolutely muscled and beat up Utah defensively. The Cougars played slow. They worked the ball around and made Utah defend for the whole 45-second shot clock. Oof. Can you imagine that? 45-second shot clock. Boy. <sighs> foot six Bradley had a high percentage shots simply not available to him on that night. The Cougars were ruthless defensively, committed to playing at a s- slow pace, and the result was that only 15 points were scored by Utah in the first half, the lowest scoring half of basketball in Western Athletic Conference history. Unfortunately, the Cougars were also struggling offensively. The Y only scored 18 points. So 18 to 15 at halftime. Oh, a barn burner. Barn burner. Uh, early in the second half, BYU pulls away and built a lead. Utah came storming back after Utah coach uh, Rick Majerus challenged the squad to get the game within three with seven minutes left. And Utah accomplished this when their star, Josh Grant, hit a corner three over the extended arm and jump of Sean Bradley. Bradley crashed into Grant on his closeout, and Grant makes the three free throw. A four-point play, 33-31. Cougars lead with seven minutes left. The Cougars thought they had put Utah away once again when guard Nathan Call made a layup with 15 seconds left in the game. Call was fouled on the make, but he missed his free throw. 44-42 BYU. Utah responded when Walter Watts, who was sprung open by a screen, dunked on Sean Bradley's challenge. Watts would get a trip to the free throw line. The game was tied 44-44 with four seconds left. Watts was a 61.2 free throw shooter. He would miss the potential game-winning free throw overtime. Cougars controlled overtime. BYU Scott Moon drove the lane, made a layup with 30 seconds left to give the Cougars a four-point lead at 49-45, 30 seconds left. And on the next possession, on the very next possession, Utah found guard Byron Wilson with some space open at the top of the key. Scott Moon scrambled on his closeout, but drew a whistle on Wilson's three-point shot. Unbelievable. The ball dropped through the basket. Wilson would go to the stripe and make his free throw four-point play again. Tie game, 49-49. I was beginning to think they were unkillable, quipped Sean Bradley. With the miraculous four-point play, it must have felt like Lady Luck was wearing red. But on this night, she was wearing stripes and had a whistle. (laughs) On the next Cougar possession, Nathan Call drew a ticky-tack call on Utah's Tyrode Tate. With eight seconds left, the Cougars were in the bonus, and Call would make both free throws. Cougars up to 51-49. Utah's final play saw Josh Grant with the ball. In his favorite corner three spot, only to be challenged by two Cougars defenders, Gary Trost and Nathan Call. Grant spotted Call's assignment, Tyrone Tate, 
wide open at the basket. And I am telling you guys, when I say wide open, we're talking (laughs) wide open. I mean, there was nobody there. Josh Grant whipped a pass to Tate for a lay-in. And when Gary Trost saw Tate with the ball alone under the hoop, he said, quote, I thought we were headed for double overtime, end quote. Tate's shot bounced off the rim and fell out. Tate quickly correct, collected an offensive rebound and tipped it back at the hoop. Same result, no good. Finally, Utah's Craig Rydall skied to the ball and tipped, it, tipped the ball in through the basket at the buzzer. The referees waved off the basket, ruling that Rydalch's putback came after time had expired. There was no review during these days, and it was a finish filled with controversy. Many felt that Rydalch's shot should count, including ESPN's announcing team, but ultimately the officials had made their call, and BYU won the 1991 WAC tournament. Woo! I mean, it's sometimes it's just got to work out. 1992. Now to game number two. And this is going to be a lot shorter. They're all going to be a lot shorter. 1992 WAC tournament. Here's the big quote to remember this one. Quote, I've made six or seven of those in a row. But if you ask me, it was probably luck. The great Kevin Nixon. Yeah, all it took to win the 1992 WAC tournament was a 54 shot. (laughs) For a 54-foot miracle shot by Kevin Nixon. Kevin Nixon came in off the bench after sitting for nearly 20 minutes, and he hits that shot. That's some major luck. And, uh, you know, the Cougars trailed by 11 at halftime of this game. They slowly made their way back, and they took their first lead of the game with 31 seconds left when Mark Heslip made a three-pointer, put the Cougars up 70-69. to UTEP's Marlon Maxey made a basket with 2.4 seconds left to put the Miners in front, 71-70. to And you know what happens next. Inbounds to Nixon. Nixon heaves! And it's good. The Cougars are going dancing on Kevin Nixon's miracle shot, one of the most famous shots in program history. So another miracle. Okay, the third one that the Cougars were able to win was the 2001 Mountain West Conference Tournament. Here's the quote for this one. Quote, Sometimes you feel right. Everything goes in and just bounces your way. The great McKelly Wesley. Here's the story of the 2001 Mountain West Conference Tournament. BYU received a bit of bracket luck. The Cougars finished as regular season co-conference champions, but they were the two seed in the conference tournament. The Cougars' semifinal game was against Wyoming. Terrell Lede, mustache and all, would score 32 points. Lede, along with Mountain West Conference Player of the Year, McKelly Wesley would combine to score 30 of BYU's 35 second-half points, a two-man team. They were leading by as many as 18 points in the second half, and BYU won comfortably against the Cowboys. On the other side of the bracket loomed the rival Utes, the top-seeded team in the bracket. BYU had split their regular season series with Utah, and Utah had been ranked as high as number 13 during the season. However, there would be no rubber match between the Utes and the Cougars. The fifth-place New Mexico Lobos upset the tournament favorites at the semifinals. 
This was a fortunate break as the Lobos represented a far favorable matchup for BYU than did the Utes. Even still, this game did not come easy. New Mexico out-rebounded BYU 36-23. New Mexico had 19 offensive rebounds. Now, usually this would tell the story, but McKelly Wesley was on fire. When you talk about one of the great individual performances in the history of BYU basketball, this is a really underrated performance. McKelly Wesley in 2001 in the Mountain West Conference Championship game, he went 11 for 12 from the field. He had 30 points. Woo! 30 points on 12 shots. Efficiency. And he had eight rebounds. During one stretch in the second half, McKelly Wesley scored 15 consecutive points for BYU. He was everything on that day, a near perfect day, 11 for 12. Amazing. And this isn't to say that the rest of the team wasn't hot. They were. The Cougars shot 6 for 11 from three-point range in the championship game. And as a team, BYU shot an astounding 61.5% from three over the course of the entire conference tournament. So despite the lava-hot shooting, New Mexico was still right in there. You remember? 19 offensive freaking rebounds. Ugh. Down two points. The Lobos had a three-point shot with 22 seconds left in the game. Just rimmed out. BYU gathers the rebound. They make their free throws, and they salt the game away. 69-65 Cougars. Combining the luck of avoiding the conference's top-seeded team, indescribably hot shooting, and a practically perfect game from one of the probably 15 to 20 best players in the history of Cougar basketball, BYU were able to beat the five-seed New Mexico Lobos by four points to grab the 2001 Mountain West Conference Tournament Championship. Now, some say that luck is for losers, But when you look at that 1991, 1992, and 2001 conference tournament championship run for BYU, quite clearly, luck is for winners too. Conference tournament success has come for the Cougars when they have hit buzzer beaters, have had buzzer beaters waved off, have had opponents choke away open looks, and benefited from upsets on the other side of the bracket. If the Cougars are going to come away from the West Coast Conference Tournament in two weeks... As champions, it is absolutely fair to say, if not necessary, to assume that luck needs to be on their side. Pestilence, war, famine, death. One white, one red, one black, and one pale. 
Oh, the horses that serve as harbingers of the last judgment have come forth in the college basketball careers of TJ Haas and Yoli Childs. And it's time to take a second to appreciate what these terrific basketball players have brought to BYU. Certainly not representative of apostasy. No dispensation. (laughs) Okay. Yoli Childs is on the brink. Okay. He's already done something that only one other player in BYU basketball history has ever done. He has collected 1,000 rebounds. He is 18 rebounds away from tying Kyle Collinsworth. And 119 obviously puts him number one all time. Yoli, sixth all time in scoring. And is 30 points away from 2,000 points. It would make him the first BYU basketball player to join the 2000-1000 club. He'd be the 39th player in NCAA history to join the 2000-1000 club. Incredible. Yoli Childs has put together quite a career at BYU. He definitely would be in this club if it weren't for the suspension or his pesky broken finger (laughs) earlier in the season. But I suspect he'll get there over the course of the next two games, and I also suspect he'll take the lead as the number one guy in team history. Probably would finish fifth all-time in scoring again without the NCAA being punitive for silly reasons against our man Yoli. Here's the thing to remember about Yoli Childs. Childs always had a great motor. He was always a fantastic athlete. He was always a player that was supposed to come to BYU and to dominate. I had the opportunity to do a play-by-play call of Yoli Childs when he played at Bingham High School, and it was awesome. You could tell he was special. It was one of those easy, easy to spot players out there on a high school basketball floor, dominated for the Bingham Miners up at that American Fork gym. It was something to behold and a moment that I remember thinking, man, I, I'm so happy that he's going to be at BYU. I'm so happy to see what he's going to bring for the Cougars uh, over the next four years. Well, Yoli has come to BYU and he's done absolutely everything that we've expected him to do. Now, for his legacy... There's a couple things I want you to think about. First of all, the numbers will speak for themselves. But if he can lead BYU to its first conference uh, tournament championship since 2001 in 19 seasons, Yoli Childs will be remembered as a legend. He's already kind of in that level, but he's kind of got this weird asterisk where he's going to finish his career with no conference tournament championships. no, uh, A lot of people have had that. But finish it with no co- regular season conference 
championships. Uh, and there's only a couple other players at this high level that would be, you know, criticized for that. It's it's Tyler Hawes and it's Kyle Collinsworth. And, of course, players like Jimmer and Danny Ainge and Chesimir Kosic and Elwood Romney and the like. Michael Smith, Devin Durant, okay, John Fairchild, these titans of BYU basketball. None of them had to deal with a team like Gonzaga being in their conference. None of them. So maybe it's a little unfair because, you know, I don't know what you do when a team in your conference is perennially in the top five in America. Uh, That's just something that we've never experienced before uh, in the history of BYU basketball. It's, It's just not even, it's, you know, it's this whole different thing. So I will note that. But if he could add a little hardware to his career, it would be immense, immense in my mind, and how I judge and kind of um, feel about Yoli Childs uh, so far in the record books. Now, before the season began, I had Yoli Childs ranked tied for 28th all-time. I I have a system basically where I measure it according to, uh, were you an All-American? Were you Conference Player of the Year? Were, Were you... All-conference first, second, third team. Were you freshman All-American? Do you, were, were you defensive player of the year? Etc. Yoli Childs had earned two all-conference first team rankings. And I have one personal measurement. And that is what I call the best player of the team. The B-pot. Okay? The best player on the team. Yoli has been the best player on the team once. It's actually kind of a, a weird one. This is sort of a uh, sort of a tough year to, to pick that out because, you know, TJ's been so fantastic this year, and Jake Toulson's held it down at times this year. Uh, but, you know, with Yoli missing, you know, a third of the year. But, no, I mean, he's been the best player on the team. <laughs> 15-2. He had a, 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 an absolutely killer game, obviously, against Gonzaga. Uh, and uh, has been uh, at the heart of the two losses, by the way. Um, The one to Utah obviously came with absolutely ridiculous officiating, totally and completely ridiculous officiating, so we'll move past that. But uh, overtime loss, really close, and then, you know, obviously insane officiating up there at the Huntsman Center. Which, by the way, I loved Mark Pope after that. If you haven't heard that or seen that, Google that and listen and watch him uh, roast roast officials by being uh, overly complimentary. But uh, anyway, and then obviously the loss to San Francisco came with Yoli. He was actually a very key part of that. They fouled Yoli Childs late in the clock, uh, late in the game. They put him on the free throw line strategically while the Cougars were trying to come back. And uh, Yoli on the free throw line has been not good this year. In fact, it's one of the it's one of the things I'm most afraid of as we start playing these really, really intense high-octane games to finish out the season. Really nervous about Yoli having to go to the free throw line and make free throws. I hope he proves me wrong. But the bottom line is, Yoli Childs, two all-conference first-team appearances. He's been the best player on the team once. That's going to get bumped up to all-conference first-team for a third time, and he'll be the best player on the team 
for the second time. This effectively will move him up from tied for 28th. And by the way, here's who he was before his senior year. So had he left and got pro, his legacy had him tied with the following. Really good company. Fred Roberts, Ken Roberts, and Trent Playstead. That's who he was keeping company with. That's a great group of four tied for 28th. But with uh, a second honor of being the best player on the team and uh, the third time of making all-conference first team, Yoli Childs will move up in my rankings just with that, just with that, based on those accolades that he received. It would put him tied for 23rd with the great Roland Minson number hangs in the rafters, the hero of the 1951 NIT championship team, and also the great Gary Trost. So, Gary Trost, Roland Minson, and Yoli Childs. Now, Yoli would get some extra consideration and some extra love because of how high he is in the book. So again, doing it just by the just by the accolades they received isn't totally fair. There's other things at play, though, here for Yoli. For instance, do you think he'll be Conference Player of the Year? There's really only a couple other players that you can think about. Um, how do you feel about Philip Petrusev from Gonzaga? Well, the two players were on the same court once. They went head-to-head, and Yoli absolutely destroyed him. 28 points, 9 rebounds. I mean, absolutely killed him. Petrusev was fine, but uh, his team was playing from behind and was using the uh, free throw line to stick stick around. I, I, he just was not the player that stepped up and controlled things in that game. Uh, the the big man, the sophomore, sophomore big man for Gonzaga. I just don't see um, Philip Petrusev. In my opinion, uh, hasn't been as good as Yuli Childs this year. But one of the problems that he'll have in winning conference player of the year is first of all, it almost always goes to the championship team. So that works against him. Um, and then the other part is, is there's never been a guy that's made been made the conference player of the year who has missed as much time as Yoli Childs has in, in both conference play and within a regular season. So, He's number one in the conference in scoring. I believe he's uh, first or second in rebounding. Usually that's an equation to win uh, conference player of the year. I do think he'll probably get honored with conference player of the year. So just playing it out, uh, let's assume that he becomes conference player of the year. That catapults Yoli quite a bit and would put Yoli up at 13th all-time Tied for 13th all-time with my man Dick Namelka, of course, the great-great guard of those 1966 championship BYU Cougar teams. Uh, Dick Namelka also was an All-American first team. Uh, He played at a time where there was no conference player of the year, so he doesn't even get credit for that. He has to just survive without it. He was an amazing player, really good. Went on to have uh, uh, an ABA career, and anyway... Dick Namelka. Yeah, man. That's that's not there's no slam there. Uh that's that's where he'd be there. Now the question is, is you know, this is now if you add best player on the team, he's gonna get that. First team all conference, he's gonna get that. If he's conference player of the year, now he's up to thirteenth. How much further can he go? Well, 
Do we think Yoli Childs is going to be an All-American? I think he probably, he has certainly a strong case. If the Cougars make a run in March, uh, I think think almost certainly he'll be an All-American. Uh, if they win a game or two there, and and he proves he he probably isn't going to be like a first team All American. That would be um, a little surprising. That would be something that I I think would would be tough uh, to potentially have come together. At the same time, um, I mean the land of All American first team, by the way, is so so uh, you know there hasn't really been that many people who've been able to accomplish that. Uh, first team All-American goes to guys like Danny Ainge and Jimmer Fredette. And uh, let's see. Uh, Chosich wasn't one. Hmm. Oh, of course. The great Elwood Romney from the 1930s. He's the only BYU player to make first team All-American twice. Uh, everyone forgets Elwood Romney because he played in the 1930s. Uh, but I'm telling you that uh, if you respect the history and you value what they did on the floor for the era that they played in. Elwood Romney is one of the five best players to ever play at BYU. There's no doubt about it. Uh, to be first-team All-American while playing in Provo, Utah, and all the voters were like in New York City at the time and everything, it's just like uh, really amazing. By the way, he also hit a uh, just a little love for our man Elwood Romney when people say it's the most dramatic, biggest home game ever. Well, this last one against Gonzaga, it was a huge one, and it was over the number two team in, the, in America, and it, it was huge. I, I would submit there's a few really great victories, uh, but maybe none more meaningful than when Elwood Romney uh, nailed a 40-footer at the buzzer in 1934, I believe, uh, to beat the Wyoming Cowboys inside of uh, what was then the BYU Women's Gymnasium because the BYU wins basketball team in the early days was really, really good and uh, was sort of the big show in town at the time. Elwood Romney sort of birthed the men's program and uh, put them into relevance. Uh, Really, really, (laughs) really important player in the history of the team. So there you go. Elwood Romney, uh, two-time All-American. Let's see, first-team All-American guys. Uh, Boy. And... Uh, Dick Namelka, yeah, I just said him, and I believe that's it. So I I doubt that we're gonna see Yoli be honored with a first team All American. Um, Tyler Hawes was an honorable mention a couple times, maybe a third team. Let's let's give uh, Yoli let's let's say third team All American. Uh, he he might make that. He might be one of the fifteen guys that they think of. Um, so. If he's like third team All American uh, or honorable mention All American, uh, if if for instance if he gets if I'm following my equation of of the uh, of the argument, if he's third team All American, uh, that would have him finished uh, tied for tenth all time with Big John Fairchild, the career leader. In points per game, the career leader in rebounds per game from the 1960s. Oh, man. He was a junior college transfer. Old John Fairchild played in 1964 and in 1965. Uh, uh, a tremendous player. Could shoot, 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 shoot. Unbelievable. Uh, beyond that, um, was not LDS and uh, really enjoyed, really enjoyed his time dating the the BYU co-eds. Uh, he, he's a handsome fella, too. Man, 
Anyway, there's actually a description of him in an old Sports Illustrated article that's that's incredible. Anyway, actually, I should probably try to interview John Fairchild. I'd love to do that. Uh, but anyway, that's where Yoli gets if he's honorable mention. If he's like third team um, All-American. So if he's conference player of the year, he's got another all-conference first team. He's the best player on the team honor. That's the Keith Shirts Award. And then uh, if he's like the third team All-American, um, that ends up putting him in eighth place. Uh, alone, so he it would be the people he'd be behind Ainge for debt, Chosich, Elwood Romney, Devin Durant, Tyler Hawes, Michael Smith. Pretty impressive. You know, a name that deserves. I'm looking at my list now. A name that just doesn't come up is like one of the all time greats. Like if you're thinking of one of the top ten players ever, um, but he really ought to is uh, Lee Kamard. He was a uh, he was an All American twice. He was an All-American Honorable Mention, All-American Fourth Team. He was a Conference Player of the Year. He was All-Conference First Team twice, All-Conference Third Team, and then he was the best player on his team two times. And beyond that, he won three conference championships. So uh, big ups to our man, Lee Kamart. Uh, really high. And he's probably, in terms of like what he achieved and in the, in the individual accolades that he received by being on All-Conference Teams and the like, uh, you know, he's someone to think about. By the way, if Yoli makes conference player of the year, he'd be the 12th player in history uh, to achieve that. The other thing with him as well is he would uh, be on an extremely short list, extremely short list of players that made all-conference first team three times during their BYU career. So just to make sure you understand sort of the category that Yoli's going to enter uh, when he gets honored with his third time doing it. Danny Ainge the only player to do it four times. Danny Ainge was first team all-conference four years in a row. He's the only guy to ever do that. Jimmer Fredette is there three three times all-conference first team. Um, Chesmir Kosic, uh, three times first team all-conference. Elwood Romney, three times first team all-conference. Okay? Then you, then you have Tyler Hawes. That's the fifth guy on the list that did it. Michael Smith. Did it three times. Um, let me see here. And Kyle Collinsworth, three times, first team all conference. So that's a, <laughs> it's pretty interesting, right? That's a, that's an interesting one. So we're, we're at seven players there. And then uh, Joe Nelson. Oh, I love Joe Nelson. He's 1950s player. He was a, uh, he was the young gun. Who came in? He was on that 1951 national championship team, so that's eight. Yoli will be the ninth. Uh, the ninth. Today. Oh, Roland Minson also. Roland Minson was a three times first team. Okay, so he will be the tenth player in history to be All Conference first team uh, three times in their career. So that's a that's a pretty pretty amazing amazing. Um, Achievement by Yoli Childs. He's been absolutely fantastic. And when, of course, when you think of Yoli, um, I like to try to think of like what was the quintessential Yoli Childs game. Obviously, he had um, the best <laughs> performance uh, against a top uh, three team uh, since Dwayne Wade. I don't know if you saw that. That's impressive. The other thing that he has going for him 
So obviously the Gonzaga's game, but I don't really think of that as the Yoli Childs game. Tyler Hawes was incredible in that game. Jake Toulson hit some deep threes. I mean, absolutely everybody. Zach Selyus had moments in that game. Alex Barcelo struggled and struggled, and then he finally hit the big, big three late in the second half. I think I think that was a, a really huge team game. I think if I was to say what I thought the Yoli Childs game was, is I would say it was that game that was played at Vivint Smart Home Arena against the University of Utah. Childs had something like 30, I, I don't have it pulled up, but he had, I think he had 32 and 11 in that game. And not only that, he absolutely hammered home one of the best dunks in Cougar basketball history. So uh, kudos to Yoli Childs. What a great time it's been watching Yoli Childs play. Now let's talk a little bit about TJ Hawes and kind of where he is. Okay, so TJ Hawes, here's the thing with TJ Hawes that I just will always think about when it comes to him. First of all, he's a Hawes, okay? Marty was a really strong, really good player, okay? I have my list pulled up. I'll, I'll, I'll see where Marty Hawes is. Okay, Marty Hawes was first team all-conference, and he was the best player on his team for one season. Uh, that puts him at 42nd, tied for 42nd all-time uh, among all BYU players. So his dad's a top 50 guy. TJ Haas now has been first team all conference once. He'll be at twice. He was all conference second team, and then he's been all conference honorable mention during his uh, time playing for the Cougars. Uh, he will also get all conference first team once again. I would be absolutely shocked if he didn't get that honor uh, this time around. And I think you're going to see that that will propel. Uh, according, you know, to my metric of how to measure it, it puts him at uh, 27th all time. That puts him tied with Travis Hansen, and, and that seems about right, right? Travis Hansen was fantastic uh, wing. He, he won and won and won, and I think that uh, I think that you're going to see um, that TJ has a similar sort of thing. He competed. TJ is going to start more games for BYU. He's going to start every single game in his career. That's never been done before. And and the other thing is, is I remember after his first regular season game, he he played as a freshman. Uh, I got in my car. I was driving home from the Marriott Center, and I was listening to the drive home thing. And one of the things that they did is they had TJ Hawes on, and he took a second, and he asked Devin Durant, Excuse me. He asked Mark Durant, and he asked Greg Rubel, right? Where do you think I rank amongst my dad and my brother? It, it instantly was the case that he was thinking about his legacy and how the chips were going to fall on his career. Obviously, he's very high in the record books. He's at one of the top ten scorers in the history of the school. Um, he's hit loads and loads of threes, and his assist... Uh, rate has been fantastic. He's a player who I've always uh, kind of believed in. I've always kind of stayed on his side, though I recognize that he's been frustrating. Uh, his freshman year showed a lot of promise, and yet I was really frustrated that entire year. I wrote this huge, huge article. It's crazy. I actually went back and read it if you want to look at it, but it's called BYU Should Should Use TJ Hawes at the One or something like this. If you If you look that up, You'll find it on Google. I, I wrote this huge piece about how Dave Rose was blowing it by having LJ Rose be the starting point guard. Uh, and, and he was blowing it by having TJ play off the ball. And then I had 
unbelievable amount of work went into showing statistically that uh, the, the team played better with TJ with the ball in his hands. So despite showing all of that and having all of that come together, uh, they brought in Jasheer Hartnett the next season, and uh, they brought in uh, Heath Schroyer, and they took one of the best up-temple, uh, play-loose-and-free players that BYU's ever had, and they put him in an entire box, and they slowed it down, and they put the basketball into Jasheer Hartnett's hands. I love Dave Rose, but uh, man, man, is it malpractice to think about this. It's it's wild to me that for three years of T.J. Haas and one of his years, his sophomore year, they literally played this grinded out slow style of basketball. Okay, and T.J. It was crowded. Elijah Bryant was thriving, and he did pretty well with that slow system. And Yoli was kind of coming along as a sophomore that year. It was just uh, it really left uh, T.J. out of the loop. And he was, <laughs> they had times where, where, uh, you know, he's playing off the ball in favor, <laughs> in favor of Jasheer Hardnet. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's just crazy. They played a grinded out style. What did it get them? A trip to the NIT. Yay. Um, and then, of course, we had the, uh, junior year, Heath Schroyer leaves, and again, it's a disaster. They only get to 19 wins. Uh, things are not good in Cougarland. It's Dave Rose's final year. There's so much uh, disorder and disruption within the team, and uh, I there's a whole book to write about all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes with that team, with Nick Emery and with uh, with uh, Tim Lacombe and the way that he and TJ were getting on and everything else. Like, I, there's a whole tell-all book that I will absolutely read or maybe uh, we'll get people to talk about it at some point and we'll hear. But I, I think I think that um, he, you know, again, part of the problem was is that TJ was sitting behind him. And about halfway through the season, finally Dave Rose kind of switched over and had TJ take over. And anyway, it was this, it was this huge mess. Dave Rose retires. Mark Pope comes in, instantly puts T.J. Haas in charge, and suddenly unlocks this guy that we always thought was going to be uh, highly touted, obviously top 100 recruit out of high school. Uh, and he's gone on to have a great season. Obviously, there's two games this year. Uh, before the season, I had mentioned that you know we want. I wanted to see the T.J. Haas games. I, I think we've had two this year. One where he wasn't particularly good, but he made the shot, and so everyone will remember it. Uh, obviously, the shot that he made against Houston uh, was completely clutch. It's one of the big reasons that they're going to the, the <laughs> that they're locked into playing in the NCAA tournament is that win over Houston, and then of course the huge shot over St. Mary's at home, and then going and having his son at the hospital right after. But TJ has been absolutely, uh, you know, a rock for this team. He's, he's started and started and started and it's been up and down and up and down and everyone else around him has come and gone or threatened to come and go. Nobody has been as loyal, strong and true to the BYU basketball program as TJ Haas. And he's had lots of reasons to be frustrated, as I just outlined, and yet here he is, okay? 
and uh, he never thought about transferring. He it never, you, you never just heard any rumors of it at all. At any point, it was never in question. Uh, and you know, think about it: Eric Mika, uh, Nick Emery, you know, Jake Toulson <laughs> came with Peyton Dastrup, uh, Jashir Hardnett left. Um, there's been all sorts of turnover during his time. Uh, with the Cougars, I, I mean, Yoli threatened, you know, to go to the draft, not once, but twice. Um, so there's been, uh, I mean, and yeah, Elijah Bryant left after three years. I mean, the bottom line is, is that these, these, uh, all these guys have decided to kind of explore and turn their head and, and, you know, for, for TJ, it's just not the case. He's a Haas. He's a Haas. You know what the nirvana, the peak, the apex of your basketball story is when you're a Haas? It's playing for BYU. It's being a Cougar. TJ's probably going to be able to go on and make a little money playing basketball, right? But just like Tyler has been able to make a little money playing basketball, (laughs) the fact of the matter is, is that the apex and what really will define his legacy and the way people think about him is, is the stuff that he's done at BYU. It's always been the most important thing to him. It's always been the thing by which uh, it, he, he has felt he should measure himself by. I mean, on the, after his first freaking game, he's asking him, guys, how do I stack up compared to Marty? How do I stack up compared to Tyler? And, uh, you know, he slowly worked his way up. Of course, he's, he's not Tyler Hawes. He hasn't worked up his way to Tyler Hawes. At the same time, if he can have some, uh, he's had legendary moments. Tyler Hawes had a couple legendary moments during the West Coast Conference uh, tournament. He had the game-winning shot against Santa Clara and sent Jaron Brown, Brown, Brownridge packing forever. Uh, Tyler Hawes also had the, uh, the shot again on the road against Texas. That was a, a huge, huge shot. Uh, both the TJ Haas's shots were probably um, bigger. I don't know. One's in a conference tournament, but probably bigger shots, you know. And uh, obviously, Tyler Haas also had the the shot that was huge against St. Mary's, but then the Dell of a dagger. Ugh. But anyway, the bottom line is, is it's been amazing to watch Tyler Haas finally be kind of loosed and let go, and and to be able to to go to work on this. Okay. Um, so you got to appreciate his loyalty. He he definitely wins the belt. He wins the Lone Peak 3 belt. I think the best individual season was by Eric Mika, but I think the uh the best Lone Peak 3 or the best Cougar that's going to go to TJ Haas, no question. Now the last time I did a podcast about basketball, one of the things it was after a couple games early in the season, one of the things that I talked about was I had a problem with the fact that Mark Pope was choosing to let the players figure it out late in games. Um, I thought that it cost them against Boise State, for instance. Uh, I think that uh, it it hurt them against San Diego State. And think again, they had the chance to beat San Diego State. And look at what San Diego State's done this year, one loss all year. I I think that um, it was a mistake. Uh, You're a great coach. You've got a, a staff that works hard, that has a mind to put it together. And in the college basketball game, even in the pro game, if you can draw up a play and and create a shot, you should do it. Um, Playing loose and free hasn't helped. 
when we've hit big game winners, it's always come after a timeout, after a chance to set it up. So the game against San Diego where the alley-oop went to Yoli, that was after a timeout. The game where TJ hit the game winner against uh, St. Mary's in Houston, that was after a timeout. So we see growth coming from Mark Pope. And then the other part is, is he's worked so hard to get everybody to buy in and to focus each and every game. And he's prepared them to be as tough uh, mentally uh, to, to keep pushing in, in spots where, where things were, were really difficult. And so I, I've been really obviously proud as, as everybody else to see him improve as the season goes on. And then the last thing that you see with Mark Pope that I just don't know gets enough credit but conventional wisdom would say, look, you've got three stars and you've got a tremendous luxury here. OK, you've got what is one of the, you know, 10, you know, you got two guys on your team that are going to finish top 10 in scoring all time. Uh, you've got a guy in Yoli who has the potential to be, you know, a top 15 player. Some people already think he's already there. A top 15 player uh, he probably very likely will be there. Uh, in the history of the program. And you got a guy like TJ who's going to be, a, you know, a top 30 player in the history of the program. Uh, and, and you take a look at what what their careers have been. You, you have that. And then what you bring in is you bring in the Western Athletic Conference Player of the Year, Jake Toulson, and he's your third best guy. I mean, you're loaded, right? You've got so much. And then you got a four-star guy to be uh, another starter for you and Colby Lee. I mean, they're saying and then Barcelo, another four-star guy they transferred in from Arizona. I mean, the depth and, and skill that they have at, at all those spots, the pedigree is, is really strong on all of them. And to have a guy that was the best player in an entire conference, be able to come in and play a role and be your third best player. He, he's been able to take a look at that. Now the, the conventional wisdom would be that if you've got three stars, like Yoli and uh, TJ and Jake Toulson, uh, who has embraced Jake the Make smartly. The conventional wisdom is you always make sure you have two of your three stars on the floor. And typically, I would say that that's probably a smart and wise strategy. In fact, if it was followed through, who could blame it, right? I mean, I, it's always smart to have as many good players on the floor, but st stagger the rest for TJ and, and leave Yoli and, and Jake Toulson on the floor. And if Toulson's off, have Yoli and Haas on, and you get it. But there has been so many times this season where he has been really courageous um, where he has trusted his rotation and, and had to go deep into his rotation and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to put Evan Troy out there for a little bit. We're going to put, you know, um, we're going to put all of our, <laughs> we're going to use our depth. We're going to use the players that we have. Nixon's going to play major minutes and Celius is going to play major minutes. And you're going to have Connor Harding out there for, for extended periods of time. And, um, what we're going to do is, is sit TJ and Yoli at the same time. 
This is usually the, the, the mix that he has, the swirl, is he'll put TJ and Yoli on the bench at the same time, and it's really courageous coaching. Really courageous uh, coaching, but he... <laughs> He 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 leaves Toulson out there on the floor to work in the post and to do his thing in ISO and to try to generate points and hold the fort while Yoli and TJ get their rest. And um it ta- boy, that I mean it's just it, what guts. And and then, you know, he trusts Barcelo to make a shot and trusts, you know, Connor Hardy to make a shot and and the rest of the guys, and, and they are making shots. And so it works because people are, are scoring. But for me, I always have a little heartburn. <laughs> Every single time I see this lineup where it's ISO Jake and the rest of the team on, on the bench, or, or the, the rest of the stars on the bench, and just kind of put it in the hands of Jake Toulson. And it's amazing that the confidence he shows in Jake Toulson. And Toulson just goes out and kind of handles his business. It's always been amazing to me the cougars have not really been hurt in those scenarios and you would think that they definitely would have had at least a couple games where that coaching decision really uh reared its ugly head because the cougars you know would be exposed that's when you can really strike against byu but it doesn't matter who we're playing it doesn't matter what the stakes are he's going to have iso jake toolson at some point and uh, I always clutch up, and I don't know why. I mean, it's we've seen it like 30 times now, and, and you know, it comes through most of the time, it, almost always. And so um, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, those are, those are like the two places that I see BYU having troubles. We've rebounded better than I thought we would uh, before the season. Um, the, obviously, we've defended much better than I thought we would. But the, the two places that I really see the Cougars – maybe being able to get beat. Uh, there's just, I, obviously there's the third, which is an obvious one, but the first is I really see free throws as an issue. I, I just don't really trust uh, these guys shooting free throws, uh, Yoli in particular, and I, I worry about that. TJ, I have a little more trust in, and uh, Jake Toulson's actually missed some some free throws in, in some spots. So, um the, uh, of the big three shooting free throws, I, I worry about that scenario. The second spot that I see the Cougars having problems is during the ISO Jake. For some reason, I just keep thinking that that's going to be, at some point, that'll be a disaster. The good news is is that you can obviously make a sub and call timeout and stop the bleeding relatively quick on that. Um, I just wonder if it's going to start momentum the other way. I don't know. It, it hasn't been a problem. And Mark Pope has navigated that. So that, that may be unfair, but it is a place that I'm always concerned about. And then, of course, the third one is uh, with the volume of three-point um, shooting that the Cougars do, um, just like every other team who shoot. Like, I mean, it's I mean the threes are harder to make, and I get it. Um, but there is just a real chance that, you know, if the Cougars just go cold, it, you know... Um, if the ball doesn't go through through the hoop and you have a hard time scoring that way, um, you, you can be out of luck. We've had a couple games just recently. Um, obviously, the one at San Diego came right down to the wire. Uh, the one at home against Santa Clara right after, just back-to-back. And then, of course, the Gonzaga game, things got a lot better. But those two games, uh, the Cougars really struggled, really struggled shooting the three ball. And uh, I, I was... Uh, 
obviously that's a thing that that can hurt the Cougars. They've been great. They've been the number one three-point shooting team in the country. But if that can go away, if the Cougars don't make shots, obviously it's harder to win. So that's a, a more obvious one. But I, I see things like free throws. Um, that, that, that could be something that really hurts the Cougars uh, down the stretch. And maybe ISO Jake scenarios uh, could be a spot where the Cougars can find some trouble. Um, so there you go. Uh, look, long one. I hope you enjoyed it. Lots of BYU basketball. It's an exciting time of year. And, um, and of course, a, a lot of history. If, uh, if, if we want, one of the things I, I thought about talking about was the greatest, like, you know, BYU home games and all that stuff. But uh, for now, we'll leave it. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode of Cougar Cast. Go Cougars! And uh, continue to shoot the three.